Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Stephen Titmus and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Amp Fiddler. Amp Fiddler's career has been decade and genre spanning, working with music royalty the likes of George Clinton, Sly and Robbie and Prince. However, he's always been connected to one place, Detroit. His contribution to the local scene there is massive. He aided the early careers of Jay Diller and Slum Village and has also been a key figure in Detroit's electronic music scene, regularly collaborating with the likes of Theo Parrish and Moody Man. To tell his unique story, we discuss some of the records that defined Ant Fiddler's life. An exchange with Ant Fiddler is up next. So we're here with Amp Fiddler. How's it going, man? It's going really good. Cool. In this exchange, we're going to talk about some of the music from your career and how that's informed the music that you've made and the places you've come from. Cool. And the first track I wanted to talk about was Sundown, Spaced <sighs> Out of Place. <laughs> song I ever made. Yeah, so who were Sundown? Sundown were some guys who were from the west side of Detroit. They were friends of mine who I had met right out of high school. The guy who had the label's name was Michael Prather. The other guy's name was Hakeem, who was a drummer, and they were really into, you know, starting to get into funk and, and production. And since I was a keyboard player, they, they suggested that I write the song. Yeah, and the record make any kind of impact at the time when it came out? It did not, but we, you know we got it played on the radio at that time. Uh, one of the stations, local stations, played it, but that was as far as it, it really went. But we were excited because we'd made a record, you know. So I think the accomplishment and uh, the fact that we completed a record was the big thing for us. And it's funny; it's one of those records that sort of became popular with diggers a long time after. Like, it's quite a rare and expensive record to get an original copy of now. It, it's a collector right now. Yeah, I wish I had a bundle of them. I've been looking for Michael Brandon. Where are you, man? <laughs> <laughs> so it came out in 1981. What was Detroit like to live in 1981? In 1981, Detroit was kind of difficult because. Um, you know, I watched my dad raise us from working in the factory at Unero. He had passed away in 76. And my brother worked in the factory after him. It was rough because the factories were starting to shut down and, and business was closing as, as we knew it. And I think it was the, the time when Detroit was uh, really falling. It wasn't the happiest time to be in Detroit, but we didn't pay any attention to that because we were so much into the music. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned your family there. You come from a pretty big family, right? Yeah, I'm the uh, youngest of five. Yeah, so was music a big thing at home? Music was a big thing, yes. My dad was from 
the Virgin Islands, from St. Vincent. My mom was from Virginia. She liked classical music, so of course he liked calypso and soca, reggae, and stuff like that. So I heard all of that. My oldest sister was really a Motown head, so she had all the Motown records. And my sister under her was a hippie, so she was really into everything from blues to soul to hip-hop to jazz to all the rock and roll shit, you know. She was just into all of that. And then my brother was a jazz head that was right up under her. He was a hardcore jazz head. And then my the brother right above me was into a doo-wop, you know, like the dramatics and temptations and that kind of stuff. So where did you fit in? I was um, really not into music my, my formative years. I was really just listening and watching because we had a piano in the house and some of them took lessons, so I watched and tinkered, but I was really not into music. I was just an innocent bystander, you know, the young bystander. I guess later in my high school years, I decided to, my mom was always asking me to play piano. The piano was there, it was a beautiful baby grand. She was always telling me I need to play piano. So I listened and uh, I took lessons and, and that's what got me started to listen to music. Yeah, because your brother played the bass as well, right? So exactly. it was, were you guys vibing off each other and playing together or was it a little bit separated? It was funny. At first, uh, my dad took us to a big department store called Federal Department Store and we were shopping. I didn't know what we were doing. I'm, of course, I'm a younger one, so I'm just tagging along. I wanted a pogo stick, but my brother wanted a bass. So he won, and I went home mad, and he was happy. <laughs> so for the first year or two, I just, must have been two or three years, I just watched him practice and play bass. And I wasn't doing anything musical, you know. I was just wishing I could bump around and jump up and down on the stick. I had, only thing I could have was a basketball I could dribble in front of the house because I couldn't go any further than that. It was a wild neighborhood. My mom made sure I stayed close to the house. Later, just going into my last year in high school, I started taking piano, and that's when we started playing together. But it took time because I had to learn the piano before we could play together because he definitely wouldn't play with me if I didn't know what I was doing. So it took about a year for me to really start figuring things out. Lucky you didn't get that pogo stick or <laughs> things could have been different. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to move on to the next track that I'd, I'd like to talk to you about, which is George Clinton's Do Fries Go With That Shake, which was, a, you know, a big record for you. It was. Tell me about your relationship with George Clinton because you started working with him. How did that happen? That was like the dream gig. I was always buying equipment when I was young. So after I learned to play keyboards, I knew I wanted to record. So I was always buying four tracks and synthesizers. The first synthesizer that I got, my brother helped me buy on Layaway. And back then you can go to the music store, give them $50 and they'll let you make payments. So my brother was a drug dealer. So eventually he helped me finish paying for it. And that was a monophonic Moog that I got. 
So I was always recording and buying stuff. And I was recording my girlfriend after I got a little more developed and got a little better equipment. And all my friends were coming by and we were recording all the time. And I made her demo and she took it to George because she knew him. He liked it and asked who did the music, and I had to come to the studio to meet George, and that's that's where the introduction happened. He said, you know, come back. At the time, I was a salesman. I've always been a salesman. My mom uh, got me the first job at a, a big department store. I was a salesperson. So at this time, I was working at a place called Incognito, and uh, I went back to work. I didn't pay any attention to what George had said. I was happy because I had met him, and I told everybody at work that I had met him. But How did that go down at the department store that you know you met George Clinton? Were people excited by that? People were excited by that. Now, I, I had left the department store, and I was working in a little boutique store. It was called Incognito. It was a really funky little store. So the owner was really cool, and he played all of these really dope records during the whole time that I was there. He he exposed me to, like, Cocktail Twins and all kind of different shit that I had never heard on the alternative side. And he played a lot of reggae, just all kind of music that I hadn't heard. They were all excited about it. And at the same time, I had been meeting, like, alumni. I met uh, just a friend of mine, Andre Fox, and Michael Clip Payne, and Georgie Clinton Jr., and all of George's family and young guys who were who were almost in the band, yeah, <laughs> but working for George. Because it's worth saying, like, George Clinton had these sort of tentacles of different oh groups God. and people that were related Man. to him. It was like this yes. humongous, like, family yeah, tree of, exactly. of music. My friends were in a band called Trelude. And then I also met the queen of funk, Malia Franklin, who was from Parlette, and she had me play in her band So I, before I met George. So I met all these other great musicians. But it, it's just a, a really interesting how the whole thing worked out. Uh, you know, he, he called me one day and said that he wanted me to come to, to do a session. And then Andre called me, too, and said, George wants you to do this, play on this track. I forgot Steve's last name. He was the producer for that track. They called me and I came to United Sound, and I played the roads on that Do Fries Go With That Shake thing and another little synthesizer part. And before I knew it, it, you know, it became a single and it was out. And I was like, wow. In the interim, George was in California and uh, he was having problems connecting the um, producers and the musicians. Because at that time, they weren't recording with Pro Tools and Logic. They had uh, these Synclavier keyboards that did everything. And this one guy had this big, huge keyboard. But the other keyboard player, who was, you know, all of the world, <clears throat> couldn't get along they couldn't get along so here I come he sends me a ticket to California I was going through drama at home anyway my brother had been shot by some guys and they were trying to rob the house so Whoa. was that was that the same brother who was drug dealing yeah, of course yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were going through a lot of drama at the house and when I told George about this he said well it's a good time for you to come to California and that's why I did the video for Do Fries Go With That Shake. Yeah, that video is cool, by the way. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. So I, I was on the French fry detail. Yeah. <laughs> so what was George like to work for? It was amazing because everybody told me that I was going to be offered drugs when I got the gig, you know, and that they were going to pay me in drugs. But my brother was a drug dealer. So when I got there, I just offered him drugs. And he said, damn, <laughs> for real? <laughs> and then we de developed a really cool relationship because we could talk about things I could ask him about how I was getting paid and how the percentages work publishing and all that stuff so he liked that we were open about everything 
And he was very honest about everything. And then when I got to California, I didn't realize that he was really in the literature, but it made sense because all the shit that he was writing was because he was reading. So he got me into literature, and I started reading a lot. He was, he was deep. It was, it was interesting meeting him. What kind of books was was he reading at the time that at he turned time, you on to? Um, I don't remember because we were in California, and he just had uh, two or three books there. When I'd come to his room in the hotel we were staying off of Sunset on La Cienega, uh, he always had books and was always reading books. So it just made sense. It kind of made me start reading again, you know. I don't remember at the time what kind of books he had then, but he was good. It, it was cool. It was good meeting him, and I learned a lot about the business, yeah. about publishing, about about doing deals with record companies, about producing, about, you know, everything. Do you think George Clinton really gets the credit he deserves as an artist? You know, he's obviously someone who's massive in funk and black music circles, but, you know, he's not necessarily someone who gets the credit of, say, like a Prince does or something like I, that. I don't think he's been given the credit that he should. For years, the drugs kind of got in the way of the industry. And now that he's he's clean, I think that he's going to start getting all his accolades that he deserves. Yeah, it'd be great to see that. Yes. I, I, I suppose, do you think you could really separate the, the music that you made, though, from the drugs, though? It seems like it was quite <laughs> an important part of it in a way. I, I think if drugs were not involved, that music would not be like it is. See, and all the musicians in the band who I learned from who were amazing musicians older than me were all either alcoholics or drug users. But I learned so much from them. And some of them were clean, you know. A lot of the guys were clean and didn't use drugs. I think it was a combination between the two that made it amazing. And I think what caused so much personality was because they were straight off the street and raw and high and recording some bad shit. Yeah, for sure. Let me go on to the next track then I'd like to talk about, which is one of my favorites, Amp Fiddler, You Play Me. This record is produced by Jay Dilla. When did you first meet JD? It's funny that they keep claiming that it's produced by JD, but it's, it's okay. Yeah. Because I didn't mind that, but I'll tell you the story. Yeah. I, I met Dilla in the 80s just after buying my first MPC. Uh, it was 89. I bought my first MPC. I got a demo deal because I was in California with George Clinton in 89. And, and I met this guy that um, took me to... Um, Polygram Records, where I met Ed Eckstein, who was the son of Billy Eckstein. He gave me a demo deal based on the Mr. Fiddler record. So I went back home to make the demo. I was playing the music loud in the basement, and some kids came by and said they rap, and they want to come by the house. That's when Dilla came by the next week. I said, bring all your boys and come over, and I'll check everybody out. And that's how I met Dilla, and they brought Dilla with them. So I said, well, you know, I can help you with this, but I'm in the middle of making a record, so it's got to be someone who can help us so that, you know, when I'm not using it, you guys can use it. So they said, well, James would be that guy because he makes beats for us now. And that's how I met Dilla. That's a pretty interesting thing. Not everyone would just let a group of kids come off their street and use their studio, like... 
what made you want to do that? Was that just like the way you were brought up, or you know, you just wanted to give these kids a kids a shot? Well, for one thing, George Clinton let me work with him off the streets, and based on my personality, he let me do certain things and use certain things that he normally wouldn't let other people do. Based on my personality, he's a good judge of character, and I, I think I'm one of the same. So being a good judge of character, I could tell by the conversation that these kids were cool. When I met James, he was a good kid because he was quiet and he and wasn't a lot of cursing profanity and a lot of bullshit coming out of his mouth. I didn't smell weed on anybody, so it wasn't crazy. That means that all these kids were respectful and raised in a decent family and just wanted to you know, get creative and make music. Yeah, and I read that um, when... At that point, before he met you, JD was just making records uh, using cassette loops and things like that. that, that that's, how, that's what he played for me when he came. And he had made all these beats from the cassette. I said, well, bring a cassette of just the loops, and I'll show you how to put them in the machine. And that's how we first got started. And how quickly did he pick it up using an MPC? To, to... It took time. I had to do all the work yeah. at the beginning. I put all the samples in a place he watched, and I showed him how it was done. But he came by religiously every day after that to learn and he kept learning and he learned fast yeah because they're not easy to learn those old npcs though. they're not and it was it was my first one npc 60 so i had to learn it after i introduced him to q-tip and he became famous kids were saying that he should look out for me and take care of me and blah 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 and i said no nah, that's not the reason why i did that he doesn't owe me anything blah blah so they went back telling him that he should do that so he thought that it was coming from me he called me I said, no, nah, that's not coming from me. You know, I never tripped that way. I mean, yes, indeed, it would be cool if you threw me something. I said, I went to Q-Tip and tried to get some money, but finder's fee for you, but it wouldn't happen. So I, I'm not tripping about that. I said, my focus was to get Detroit hip-hop on the map, and, you, and you're doing that, so keep doing it. Later, a friend of mine from the barbershop called me and said, I got a bag of zips I want to bring them by for you. So he came by the house, dropped me off the bag of zips, and said, make me some beats and you can have them. Put the zips in NPC, they were all Dilla zips. So, so he just had a bag of... He, he worked at the barbershop, and he bought them from someone at the barbershop. Oh, I see. For $100. Dilla said when he moved house, the, the movers stole some of his things. Those zips were part of what they stole. And they went to the barbershop and sold them. It just happened to a friend of mine. Now, this is how karma works. Good karma, when you do good things. So Dilla said, you can have those, because I owe you that, so you can have them. Oh, wow. So they, you just ended up with these zips of uh, Dilla tracks, basically. Exactly. Wow, amazing. Hence comes the track, You Played, you played Me. Oh, and that was made out of basically the loops that like, had, had come from that it was, machine. It was the track that came from that zip. So here's what happens. I load the zip in. Here's the track. I record the track into Pro Tools, and then I play keyboards over it. I leave some of it, but I make a bridge and then I sing over it. So it's co-production. Yeah. But people don't see it that way no. because they know it's a Dilla beat, so they think it's produced by Dilla. But most people who think that way are beat makers who don't understand what production is. Of course. Something I had to learn from George Clinton. I, I would give him music, and I would think that I was going to be producer on it, and then he does all kind of shit to it. I'm like, okay, damn, he's putting all that. And I had to let go of thinking that this is all my creation, once I give it to him, because he's the producer, and then we become co-producers. So that was one thing that I had to learn, that other people have to learn that 
production is not just a beat that somebody samples. It's the finished product and how did it come about? How was it finished? Who mixed it? Who oversaw the whole project? Yeah, of course. And you mentioned collaboration there. Like you've done so many collaborations. Like what makes a good collaboration in your in your eyes and in your experience? You know, two people who are on a good vibration together can create some amazing things. I think that's what makes a good collaboration. That that just you're on the same page and and the completed project from the collaboration is is amazing because you you know you work together well. Your ideas really fit. And who have you worked with where that spark's just been very quickly? How do you know when that spark of inspiration is going to happen? I think we don't really talk that much. We just work and then we have, we're continuously working. I'm like, like Raphael Sadiq and I work like that. We, we know it's like we're continuously just working towards this until we finish it. It happened like that with Sly and Robbie in the studio. It happens like that with George Clinton. We just work until we finish friend Yam Hu, who I worked on the last record, we, it's the same thing. We just work until we finish. The Dames Brown, the girls that sing on that record, it's the same thing. We start from the beginning until we end, and it's completed. It's fascinating to me. You've worked with so many people, many who are considered geniuses. You know, Do you think that that's a real thing, genius, that it can't be taught? You know, I think it can be way. developed. The more you record, the better you get. Yeah. I mean, and it is part genius because uh, working with Leon Ware, was the, he was like a genius at writing, uh, both lyrically and composition-wise at the keyboard. I learned so much. And I think that it's just constantly doing things, the repetition of things that create that genius. And some people just have it naturally, though. Dilla had was just a natural for it, natural genius. George Clinton just had a natural ear for certain things. And Bernie Worrell, the keyboard player around him, was a genius, just like a wizard. And all the other musicians, Eddie Hazel and Mike Hampton, all those guys, they had a position like it was a team. I think the whole collaboration, what's beautiful about it is when you hear and see like your united team win because there's such an energy between the players. Yeah. Like sports, I think music is one of the same, and I think it takes preparation and it, it definitely takes good coaching. So I think the mentorship thing is important in music like it is in sports. You know, like your Manchester United, you know, they, they have a great coach. And without their great coach, they couldn't be winning like that. So I think with young musicians and young artists and even musicians my age, when we want to accomplish and go to the next level, we need mentorship and great coaches. Such a good way of looking at it. I want to go on to the next record now, which is Amp Dog Nights. I'm doing fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna find
When did you first become aware of, of Moody Man? My brother and I were doing sessions for him, not knowing who he was. Norma Jean Bell, a saxophone player, brought us over to her house to do sessions for Kenny. They thought we were just doing sessions for a guy. You know, he'd pay us, and it was cool. And at the same time, I was working with Play It Again Sam here on my album, and I didn't know that I was working with Kenny because Carly Kaff, the my a and guy, kept saying, you got to meet this guy Moody, man. I think you guys will work together well. And I was like, I don't know who he is. So one day we came to the studio and Kenny had this record for us and gave me and my brother this record. It was a Moody Man record. So I was like, well, damn, who's this? He's like, it's me. <laughs> so that's how we met, basically, and became cool. And, and that's how I'm doing fine. So I said, I need, a, I need a song for my record. When I started doing the record, I said, I need a, I need a song from you for my record. And he brought a, a beat. And I played the keys to it. My brother played bass, and I just started singing. I'm doing fine over it. And uh, he took everything and kind of cut it up and chopped it up as he wanted to and finished the production. How does a Moody Man's approach in the studio differ from yours? Has he got a different way of working, perhaps? <clears throat> he has a different way of working because at the time he was using a, a different way to record. We were using a computer. He was using a... a Roland device and the way he put things together was quite different than we did but we never questioned it because everybody has the method I knew that already because I, I had worked with so many different people I was just happy because we were being creative a lot of times you just record and then I'd record and then he'd take the music and take my vocal and finish it how he heard, how he heard it and arrange it. So it was definitely a different way than we, we work because normally I sing things where I want them to be and maybe I move them around, but most of the time I don't. I just sing them where I want them to be, whereas in his case he could move things where he wanted to and you know like a DJ does and put things where he hears it because he, he hears things different because he plays records for people all the time. So uh, back then I didn't understand that, but I learned from that. It was cool. Do you enjoy DJing at all? Or? I do. Yeah, I do. I, like, I, you, I, like, I know you do DJ. Yeah, I do. But I only play my music, so it's even better. So I don't have to feel like I'm a DJ because I'm just playing my music. Yeah. Have you ever played other people's music too? I have done that before as yeah. a DJ. For uh, the first gig I got was for my friend's wedding, and I had to play the, all these all this music for his wedding. So I was, it was challenging. Yeah, weddings are hard. Yeah, weddings are hard. <laughs> and, and I like to take on challenges. I think that the only way that we can grow sometimes is to fail. And, and people don't understand that sometimes you go for something that you dream of doing and, and you lose, but then that's what teaches you how to win, and that's where you win. Another record that I really like that you made with Kenny Dixon Jr. is Love and War. Can you tell me a little bit about that record? Yeah, I love that record too. And it was recorded the same way. It was a, um, it was a, another track that I loved. He just playing me stuff to see what I would like. And it was a couple of things that he said, you know, you can have that one. Take this one and you can have it. I'm not going to do nothing with that. So he gave it to me. And then I was able to sing all my vocals over it and then my son was a young man he's playing trumpet he played the trumpet all the way through and i i just kept it the part that was really cool and looped it and at the time it was just the perfect kind of a lyric because um we were at war and we always seemed to be at war fighting some country over nothing it's a, it's a really special record and the performance by your son is, is great on it too yeah, yeah i want to move on to the next record now you might not remember this one actually 
So this is Free Chairs, Midday Blues at Midnight, which is a record you're credited on. I think this is one that I played on because I played on so many things that I didn't know where the song went. And you're right, because I don't remember. I remember playing on it, but I don't remember <laughs> it being on that record. Because <laughs> I never got that record. So you're going to have to send that record to me. That's, I can send you the album. That, that's sweet. But yeah, like I wanted to talk to you about that project because it's a record that a lot of that audience really loves. But it's so mysterious. Like no yeah. one really knows who's on it. And right. I just wonder what your experience of was, was working on that particular record. I mean, record. I, I could tell that's me, so. It was one of those things where I come over to Kenny's house and he plays something for me and, and I just play. And it may be one of those things where sometimes he pulls uh, pieces from other records that I played on and puts them in and put pieces because I played, I was playing so much that he probably had tons of stuff that he could say, I could put this over there on this other track, you know. You know, he's like an artist that um, has a canvas. So he takes whatever he hears and puts it wherever he wants, sort of. So it's it's kind of nice. Yeah, and not just this record, quite a lot of records that you've made, certainly with Kenny, like they do a really good job of combining jazz and dance music, which I think right. is really, really rare. Is that something you strive for coming from, you know, someone who's a jazz fan? I'm a jazz head, so I don't necessarily strive for it, but I like to use it when I can because um, I love jazz. So I think everything should cross with each other and i feel like if if i sing soulfully then why can't i sing soulful over reggae why can't i sing soulful over jazz blues or anything else so or house you know it doesn't matter to me you know as long as it fits i think that that's the cool part about it yeah you're not someone who seems to be constrained by genre at all do you even think of music really music in those terms i really don't most of the time i just think of good music you know and I, and i love a lot of different things so i just love it when it's good it doesn't matter what kind of music it is so that Free Chairs record is a really good example of a of a very Detroit collaboration, you know. Yes. And you've collaborated with many many Detroit artists. You still live there, right? What makes Detroit so special as a city musically? It's very cold in the winter, and we are in our houses, basements, uh, rooms, or wherever, just working on music a lot. And our passion for music, I think we we all feel like we have something to stand for because. We're seen as such a a dark, cold, crazy place, you know, and I think that it's important for Detroiters to be innovative, and I think we like being innovative. We love music. Just the passion. It's just like, ah, we got to have some music. Ah, more music, more music. We just love music. It's just like, ah, music, yes. Later for all the other shit, music is what's important for us. It's interesting you mentioned the innovation because that is definitely something that a lot of people would associate with Detroit, I suppose. Yeah. But maybe that is the thing, that if everyone's trying to outdo each other and come with something new, maybe that's why it is so innovative. Even if it's not competitive, it's just that it's that thing like Detroit versus everybody. It's like, you know, we have all these other cities around us that are being noticed. You know, we, New York is big. Philadelphia is big. Chicago is big. L.A. is big. But in the eyes of us, we see, they don't see Detroit, you know, and we're like, we're going to make you motherfuckers see us. We're going to make you see us and make you recognize us. Because we were recognized once with Motown and with jazz, with other things that made Detroit amazing with the auto industry. And once that fell, 
we felt like, no, no, we still have to be heard. Even with hip-hop, it was important for me to let people know that Detroit has a different kind of hip-hop that's going to set precedence over everything else, and you're going to know that shit came from Detroit, and that was Dylan. Yeah, of course. And, and our whole premise was to be innovative and creative and different. He and I always talked about that, different way to do things, change this time signature, make it, you know, do whatever, stretch it. You know, there's no limitations to what you can do with this machine and what you want to do and what you hear. And do you think now Detroit has got the recognition it deserves? No. I think it's coming, but I, I, I still don't think it's gotten the recognition that it deserves. I think people do recognize it and they acknowledge it and that's good. But I think, you know, we still have work to do, and I, I don't mind that. I just think that I mean, I've always wanted to, be, wanted to be recognized more in the States and in the world. But, you know, we just keep moving and keep creating and not worry about that, you know. For me, I haven't even touched on what I want to do musically because I'm putting out music that was sitting on my computer like this. Yeah. You know, like, like I've got so much music. I can't wait till I start creating again. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because it's been a very prolific period for you. Two solo albums in the last two years and another album collaboratively. Right. That's a strong amount of music coming out. Like, what, what's made you release so much recently? Uh, my family keeps dying. So there's oh, my mom first, then my son, which really just broke me. And then my sister, which broke me again. And now, 2016, it's my brother who I was super close with that's breaking me down again so normally i go into seclusion and just ball up and don't do anything so people are probably wondering i i'm giving him this track to write to how come, how come he hasn't written to it because i can't get into my head like i normally would yet in order to keep busy i was really between those things like just on the border of insanity i get it together and then i finish a record you know and i'm in work in order to not think about what's happened i have to work all the time so i'm a workaholic i don't like starting something until i finish something so now i'm into these pianos and uh, restoration of pianos so i'm restoring a baby grand in my house and i haven't been doing anything else that i need to be doing and it's kind of wearing me out because i want to create music but i know that i also want to practice so i'm putting all new strings and pins in this piano and that's basically it's just that thing about if I don't do this, I'll probably be sitting on the street somewhere on drugs or, or, or fucked up somewhere because now my brother is sick and he has cancer and there's only three of us left. So hopefully he can pull out of it, but it's been a tight fight for him. So it's kind of on edge. And in order for me to keep my sanity, I have to stay busy. I have to keep working on music. So the, the creativity is, is giving you a way of dealing with these really tough, hard situations. Really dark situations. Yeah, and it's making me more and more in a space where I'm by myself. It was easy before to finish this record and before because my brother was living in the house with me. But now I'm in the house by myself with just two dogs. So it's even harder because I feel like I'm kind of trapped in a cage and I can't focus all the time. So um, I, I'm just thinking about how to work now. So I think I work better if I start in the daytime and work on music, and then at night, maybe I go to the gym and watch movies or some shit. <laughs> well, I'm going to play the, play the last record that we're going to talk about, and I think it's actually quite fairly significant in a way.
So I wanted to talk about this particular track because it seems like it's a very common theme in your work is positivity. And this is about good vibes. And, you know, you're just talking about a hard situation there and how you're making music. Like, why do you think it is important to have positive messages in your music? I feel like I'm here for a reason. And if I'm not saying something positive with all the other bullshit that's being said in the United States musically, then I'm defeating my purpose and I'm going against the reason why I'm given the opportunity to make music for whatever reason and for wherever the power comes from. And I listen to a lot of songs. I listen to a lot of music and I listen to a lot of artists when I was a kid that only spoke about important shit. And they, they wrote songs in a way that made you think differently and made you think other than I want to slap that ass, fuck you, smoke a blunt, uh, look at my new car, all that other bullshit, or baby, you so fine, or whatever the bullshit is that we sometimes write about. And I'm guilty of that too sometimes, just writing about relationships. But at some point, I think that it's important to write about things to make your audience feel better. And that's what I like, you know. Sure. And I, I mean, it kind of reminds me in a way of something like Roy Ayers, you know, where he's often got his music full of positive energy. Exactly. But, but also as well, you know, just quite big themes that, you know, can relate to everyone. You yeah, know? yeah. It's interesting you said that because I'm supposed to be connecting with him soon because we're so... He said it to me last time, and we got to write something together, man. We got to write together. So I'm really looking forward to that because I feel like he's another mentor of mine that I've always wanted to work. And God, the creator works in mysterious ways. I've been put with all these great people who I really love, have always wanted to work with. Uh, I think the only person or type of uh, artist that I haven't worked with is a jazz artist, like a, a Herbie Hancock or some shit like that, you know. But I'm happy because if I could work with somebody like a Roy Ayers, it's, I think we're on a similar page, you know. And I've learned from him and other artists that speak consciously about the way they write. Do you feel that, you know, your career has sort of been guided by your faith in some ways. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the people who I love the most are dying around me and it hurts and it's hard for me to to get through sometimes. In the day I watch a movie and it has me in tears because of something that happens in the movie. So I know that the creator has me here for some reason and I have to just keep trying to fulfill that and write in a way that empowers people. You've been making music for nearly 40 years now. <laughs> I, I just wondered, someone who's been doing it as long as you, is there anything you find hard about it still? Yes. What is that? Playing solo at a keyboard, piano, whatever. I still find it hard because I'm not practicing all the time and I feel like I need to be studying more. When I first started playing piano, it was only two years that I got my first gig. So I went straight on the road with Enchantment. I've only been playing piano about almost three years, two and a half years. So three years and you're out there playing in front of people. Out there. Big concerts. Masonic temples. After that, I came home and uh, I worked with RJ's latest arrival. I went on tour with that band. And after that, I met George Clinton and it was 10 years strong. Was Not Was was before George Clinton. 
So I never really had the chance to... I'm like my cousin, Greg Fillingains, he's a keyboard player that's been playing since he was five. I had to just keep learning at the time between gigs, between tours. So that's how it's been working for me. My brother and I always been playing together in clubs and jazz clubs and different dates. But I feel like I, I just still need to get more accomplished at that. It's fascinating to me that, you know, you can do something for so long and still feel like you've got more to learn and more to go forward. I guess it never really stops, does it? It doesn't. I mean, a lot of my friends who are keyboard players came out of church and I was raised in a Catholic church. No, whatever. We're there and there. You know, and I'm sitting there. I never learned the gospel. They've, they've got a head start, those guys. They got a head start, man. And that, so they, but they don't have the funk that I bring, so they're missing that part. Because when I play funk, that I play is different than they don't play funk like me because they don't know that side of it. So they miss that whole era of funk that I got. Well, that's a big one. Like, what is the secret to? playing funk because that is something that is elusive i don't know i guess you gotta just shit on yourself a couple times you know how stinky shit's gotta be you know it's gotta be some you know piss on yourself whatever you know smoke some weed you know all of that shit you gotta get down dirty you know it's just like you know you gotta get on stage with some other guys that just drag the shit you know play crazy shit around you know you got i was playing with 14 people on stage so I had to really and I was playing next to Eddie Hazel so I had to really learn how to fall behind and and play in between and where not to play where and, and the important thing is where not to play it's not always playing it's not playing sometimes that's cool about funk yeah I guess it's such a thin line between ultra tight and ultra sloppy yeah that, like exactly. you go too far one way it's <laughs> it's over exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well Finally, I just wondered, you know, you've achieved an enormous amount in your career, but what do you still want to achieve? I still want to make a jazz record. Yeah. Definitely. I still want to make a jazz record. I think I really love jazz and I don't care what it is. I mean, I just made a, a jazz record with Will Sessions and it's a fusion jazz record. And that's cool because it's out there. Some of the stuff I play, I'm like, ugh. And then some of them I'm like, oh, shit, that's really cool. It's called Savad. It's really funky. So, and then um, I still want to go back and study with some people. I want to study jazz and I want to study gospel and I just want to keep learning. I just want to keep learning. Sometimes.